Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Motors and Martinis. I'm Carrie Hubbard, and as usual, I'm here with my co-host, Brian Rab Davis. And I just want to say welcome, everyone, to the new year. I know it's been a few weeks since we've had an episode, but we kind of regrouped a little bit, did some stuff, and uh, here we go for our first episode of the new year. And we've got a lot planned, one of which is uh, coming up after this episode, even knowing it's going to be kind of out of sync, is Brian was at the DC Auto Show and did some recording and interviewing. So let's touch on that real quick. Uh, Brian, tell me how that went. You know, I'll tell you, it was, as with so many things on Motors and Martinis, a bit of an exercise in improvisation, but because, you know, we can roll with the punches, I made it work. Um, I had an interview session with uh, a good friend of mine, an automotive journalist, William West Hopper. He's the, quote, real DC car guy, unquote, uh, and we just discussed, uh, uh, you know, the world of new cars and car shows and what they were and what they are presently. And I also got to interview a member of a local chapter of a Mustang club, and this is really interesting. He was able to put to rest a long-standing rumor about the Hertz uh, GT350 Shelby Mustangs. But I'm not going to tell you just what he said, because we've got the audio of that interview, and we're going to plug that into another episode in the future. So you're just going to have to wait. Ooh, I look forward to listening to that one, because I know there's quite a rumors behind all that stuff, but we'll definitely wait till that airs on that episode. Yeah, I, I was going to say, even I, you know, who thought, you know, I pride myself on trying to separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to uh, to automotive rumors was taken aback by this one. So it was a, it was a real uh, gem to get this guy's input. And he's he's got a G350 that he's owned since 1971. So uh, he's got he's got the dirt, I got to tell you. Oh, that's really cool. I look forward to that one. Definitely. And besides that, how has the new year been treating you? Well, I've got to say I've enjoyed sort of stabilizing after the holidays. I know almost every uh, episode we recorded last year was prefaced by me saying, oh my God, everything's crazy. And that's because it was. Now, uh, you know, weddings behind us, holidays are behind us, um, a, a couple of deaths and a sick nephew. Well, the sick nephew, we're, anyway, we're not going to get into all that. Long story short, the traumatic events of 2022 have reached a point of stasis and stability. So I'm, I'm feeling a little more, uh, relaxed. We'll just go with that. Not that there aren't still many important things to, to worry about here. Well, getting to some level of relaxation or not having so many chaotic things going on is definitely a nice thing. And But as usual as everything in life, something will pop up and it'll go all around once again. <laughs> well, and actually, I do have uh, at least three things scheduled to pop up. Um, there's the Malays Motors, uh, Malays Day SoCal that we have planned for March, uh, I believe, 26th, and that's going to be down in Southern California. We, uh, we had a venue picked out for that car show, and uh, they pulled out at the very last minute, so we've scrambled to find a new venue. I think we are going to end up having the show at the Automobile Driving Museum, which is where we had our last Southern California show a few years ago. Uh, that has not been finalized yet, so that's coming up in March. Then I've got the uh, Malays Days picnic at my own house, which it goes without saying, Carrie, uh, you're invited. I, I do realize it's a bit of a schlep from Albuquerque to Baltimore, but uh, so yeah, that's that's a very low-key event at my own house, not a car show at all. Uh, then after that, uh, in we've got a, I've got a show that I'm working with in the Brome with the Brome Society in uh, De Greater Detroit area in in. Uh, 
in uh, July, excuse me, in June. So I've just got all those shows I've got to plan for, and that's going to, uh, you know, that'll definitely put some pressure on me. That definitely sounds like quite a bit to deal with. I haven't orchestrated such a thing, so uh, I give you credit for that. And for anyone out there listening, if they want to get information on the Malays Days uh, gathering in SoCal, where can they find that information? Uh, best place would be to email me directly at malaysemotors at gmail.com and just put car show or words to that effect in the uh, subject line. Again, that's malaysemotors at gmail.com. Uh, and I'm sure if you email motors and martinis, Carrie will be good enough to forward the email to me as well. And that's uh, motors and martinis at gmail.com, if I am not mistaken. It's actually, I'll correct you on that, motors and martinis podcast at gmail.com. That's right. Motors and Martinis podcast at gmail.com. I, of all people, should know that. Because for some odd reason, Motors and Martinis at gmail.com was already taken. So it's Motors and, Martin- Motors and Martinis podcast at gmail.com, which uh, you can email us for any questions or suggestions, you know, as usual, as we said before. And um, besides all of that, uh, we haven't really made much of an announcement about it yet, but Brian and I were uh, co. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? We were guest we were... co-guest, I guess you could say, on a Tea Toast and Trivia, which is this lovely lady in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, who has her own podcast she's been doing for several years. And she doesn't have a particular uh, genre. It's really just uh, interest of people who have fascinations, interests, hobbies, and just pure love and joys of stuff. And so we were on there several months ago, and that actually just aired within the past couple of weeks. So if anyone wants to go check that out, please do and support Rebecca Budd. She's absolutely wonderful. And one of these days, we'll actually have her on our podcast. Oh, that was a real a real treat to be on uh, a guest on Tea Toast and Trivia. And uh, as per usual, I had some audio issues on my end for that show. I was, but uh, we still made it work. They, uh, Rebe- I believe Rebecca's uh, husband does the audio engineering for them, and uh, they did a good job and pulled it all together. And it was it was a real pleasure, I must say. Yes, he he does. And uh, kind of a side note on that. Rebecca was one of my big inspirations for wanting to get into podcasts, and I uh, picked her brain quite a bit and also her husband's brain on um, putting together a podcast, all of the technical sides of it, audio engineering, the software I use is the same stuff he likes to use as well. So kind of a big shout out to Rebecca, but she helped kickstart this particular podcast and kind of helped get it structured for how we're doing it now. Uh, indeed, I, I tip the hat that I am presently not wearing to Rebecca and uh, Tea Toast and Trivia, and I, I do hope that they continue to enjoy every success. Definitely. Well, now that we've got some some of the administrative stuff for the new year out of the way, uh, I don't think we really have much of an idea for an episode other than just kind of bantering about on certain stuff uh, on my side. I got my 1986 Mercury Grand Marquee LS Colony Park. God, that is such a mouthful. I got it running last week. I'm not surprised. Those Panther platform cars are very, very reliable. I mean, I should know. I've got one. Well, it was it was kind of infuriating. I'll get into it for a minute. That uh, It's one of those great displeasures slash kind of a pleasure sometimes, depending on how it goes, that, you know, it sat for five or six years from the people I got it from. And he said that they had it running, and then it just sat. So, of course, with our wonderful, wonderful petrol that we have in this country, the fuel pump completely locked up, so it was destroyed. So I ended up putting a brand-new fuel pump in it and still couldn't get it going. And I was just driving me crazy. I wasn't getting a signal 
for the fuel pump, the injectors, and on that era of Fords, everything gets powered and then goes to the ECM, and the ECM actually grounds it, and that's how it gets its signals and does all of its stuff. So I ended up pulling out the computer, pinning out everything, doing electrical tests, and all it was, and it infuriates me that I missed this, but it was kind of hidden on the passenger side inner wheel well where the uh what they call the ford steel me junction is um there was a small wire that had been disconnected from the negative battery terminal which was kind of the major ground for a lot of the stuff and when somebody was monkeying with it at some point the wire got broken and a part of it was uh missing so i actually reconnected it tested it bloody thing started right up well, at least you didn't have to get a computer, but the computers, I believe, are still available for those and not terribly expensive. Yeah, they're not too bad, and thankfully, that's still really early of the era that the computers don't care what it's in. You know, it's not like all the new stuff that you have to code it to the car and this night. You can just slap it in and go, but I can go out there and it fires right up. Uh, the gear selection seems to work fine. The transmission works fine, so now I've just got to do a couple of little minor things on it, figure out some stuff on the interior, and then I can start driving the big old bloody wagon. Marvelous. Uh, I definitely want to put a new set of shocks on my Lincoln Town car, because when I was underneath it working on it, uh, I I noticed they're starting to weep, and I know they're, I believe, original, so they're they're toast. Oh, and on that uh, on that note, I finally repaired my lift. So uh, as I talked about uh, in in past episodes, the hydraulic cylinder had failed, and uh, on the lift I have in the garage, and it's an older lift that uses one single very large hydraulic cylinder, uh, the top of which is a pull an idler pulley and a chain that goes over the idler and down under and over to the second post, and that's how it lifts from both sides. Well, when I was picking up the Lincoln to get it ready to theoretically use in my wedding, uh, it started puking hydraulic fluid and. And uh, the Lincoln just managed to sink down to uh, the the first stop, which actually was already on this first stop. And the cylinder just bled down, and the Lincoln remained stuck uh, 18 inches in the air. And so, so I had to get the lift, uh, get the ram out. And a, a friend of mine came over and helped Chris and I with that. The the guy's a NASA engineer, so he's a lot smarter than me, although that doesn't take much. And we managed to rat, ratchet strap around the cylinder from the top of the post and pull it up out because the cylinder itself probably weighs 100 pounds. And where it was positioned, it was just very difficult to get a good enough grip on it to pick it up and, and remove it. So I we got it extricated from the lift and I brought it to a hydraulic shop. And fortunately, there are enough remnants of Baltimore's glorious industrial past that there are hydro shops around still. And uh, they were able to rebuild it for me. For, it was about $430, but uh, that's... Uh, you know, a small price to pay for for specialist work. They did they they rehoned it and put new seals on it. Did a, you know a lot of machining and things. And uh, now my my lift is operational. My Lincoln is on the ground, and it's a wonderful wonderful thing. That is fantastic to hear. And I was actually going to ask how was the lift saga, but you answered it, so that's great. I bet it's nice to have the Lincoln back on its own four tires, and being able to drive it again. Uh, it is. And uh, thanks to climate change, Maryland is enjoying, I believe, the fifth warmest January ever. So we had some periods where there was no salt on the roads and there'd been some rain. So we were able to take it out for a nice cruise and uh, just, just enjoy the enjoy the ride. It was really funny. Uh, Chris and I took it to a local thrift store because I'm hunting for some glassware. And uh, in that parking lot was a, a, a Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow, a black Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow. And it was just hilarious to see the Rolls-Royce parked in front of a thrift shop. Um, so that was that was a special little treat there when we took the Lincoln for a cruise. 
Oh, that's great. Kind of a twisted thing to see, but you know, Rolls Royce, especially the old ones, they can be affordable. They're not affordable to fix as I know, but they are wonderful cars. I do. I need to get my Bentley out of the garage and cleaned up and do a couple of little things to it and drive it some more. I, I really don't like letting it sit because parts, parts are just too expensive and it doesn't like to languish in the garage, but I do enjoy driving it. Uh, speaking of sagas, have you made any headway with your, your clattering mistress, the Celebrity Diesel? Not quite yet. I'm in a little bit of a financial crunch to be able to do a huge amount with it at the moment, surely for just the pure cost of what those head bolts slash studs, depending on which way I'm going to go. So I started it up the other day because I had to move it. You know, it starts, it runs. It's just you can't run it too long because of the blown head gasket. So once a little bit of um, money becomes procured for that project, I'll be able to order the rest of the parts and then tear into it, do the whole video series on it. So... My uh, my latest insanity has been dealing with the the location that I live at. The uh, village council government has decided that um, they're cracking down on every single property around, like everything, and writing everyone up for stuff. And of course, I've got a couple too many cars, so I have received several violation letters about too many inoperable vehicles. Which, annoyingly enough, they all run and drive. I just you know can't drive them across town, but. I've sold off a couple of cars and I just need to go through and do some uh, registration. So I've got active tags on most all of them so I can get them off my back. So that's what I've been dealing with the past couple of weeks. Oh, there's nothing quite so wonderful as dealing with local government, is there? Especially when they've got to be in their bonnet about someone who hoards, I mean, uh, an automotive enthusiast. Well, the really annoying thing, not to get into the side of it, but we moved down to this area because it's a very agricultural community with a lot of people who've been down here for a long time. And, you know, no one cares. You know, my neighbors don't care. There are plenty of other people with stuff around it. But for some reason, the past couple of years, there's been some new people elected in and there's some uh, officials that work for the local government that for some reason are trying to like turn it into a big homogenized homeowners association, which we don't have. There is no homeowners association, but they're trying to push upon this agenda that no one really wants, but it's what they decided that it should be. So now it, I think every single person on my road got a violation letter for something. It's, it's even some minuscule stuff. And what really bugs me is this woman was taking pictures over my wall into the backyard and then sending me the letter. So it's uh, gotten a little bit of a issue with that. She was taking pictures. So a number of the vehicles that she was complaining about are not even visible from the street. No, 90% of them aren't visible from the street, but they're visible when you take your camera and poke it over my wall and take pictures. But she has this high and mighty complex that she's better than everyone else and can do whatever she wants. So it's it's been a bit of an issue recently. But anyways, that's uh, something for a different day. <laughs> well, I hope you're able to get that resolved and... Um... Not to not to wish ill on anyone, but I, I hope the peeping Tom uh, is is repaid in kind by someone else taking pictures over her wall. Well, it's uh, it's gotten to the point that I actually reserved legal counsel on some of the issues and several of the other people, and I'm trying to we're trying to like get a bunch of people together to kind of go against the local government because of just the stuff. the The one thing they did was during COVID they. I will use quotes very heavily posted some regulation changes in the basement of city hall, but it was locked and you can only see it by appointment. And then they put the laws into place before COVID was over. And everyone's like, when did this change? And they're like, Oh, we had it posted for six, eight months. And 
We didn't in, see it. And they're like, well, it was in the basement in a locked building, but it was visible. Uh, and there's no reason they couldn't, even during COVID, they could have absolutely posted the notices outdoors or email or on the city website, so on and so forth. But let's get back to cars because we're, I, yes. this is this is a deeply unpleasant subject for you, I'm sure. And, and I would and be... My, my stress levels don't need to be elevated any more than they currently already are. So, um, yes, on cars of things, uh, you know, my project pile list, whatever you want to call it, has been moving along. I've actually thankfully been at the point that my energy levels are quite a bit better and the weather is not as crazy cold as it has been. So I've been able to, you know, tinker a little bit here and there with a bunch of stuff and move projects along quite a lot further than they were, which is a very pleasing thing to me because I definitely do want to get these things running and driving and enjoy them. You know, and speaking one one of the banes of my existence, and I'm sure you'll understand this, is coming across a car that you really, really want, and as usual, the comptroller of the exchequer says, nine, you do not have the funds to purchase the car. And the most recent one was a 1957 Lancia Apia <gasps> sedan. Oh, it's uh, for sale up by Syracuse, New York. They're asking fourteen five. It's in very apparently very good mechanical and and cosmetic condition, at least based on the pictures I saw. And you know, fourteen thousand five hundred Mustang twos are going for that kind of money now. And I, I like the Mustang too, but I like the Lancia Apia more. That would be such a lovely car. Oh my gosh! I mean, it is just. Piss elegant. And for those of you who don't know, it's a sedan and uh, it's got suicide doors, but there is no center pillar. So when the doors are open, it is a completely, you know, there's there's no post to get in the way. The doors just close upon themselves. It's really just so elegant. Oh, my gosh. Well, I have recently, and I'm actually looking at it right now, found a vehicle and it was at that uh, estate kind of auction I was working at in Roswell a month ago. That I saw and I annoyingly, it's one of those things like I wish I never saw it because I fell so madly in love with it. But I just knew that the Cosmos weren't going to line up to make it work. But it's a 1949 Chrysler Windsor two-door with the flathead six and the fluid drive transmission. And it's kind of of that perfect level for me where it's a very nice car. It's complete. The paint isn't the best. You know, it's kind of uh, sun-baked and faded a bit. The interior... Is a little bit lived in, but it's complete enough and ratty enough to where, you know, get it on the road and just drive the ever-loving piss out of it. And it sold for $3,268. Well, I'll tell you, those Chryslers, the flathead Chryslers with a fluid drive, they're not going to accelerate quickly, but they will accelerate forever. They're very good cars. You know, a lot of people don't realize that Chrysler Corporation built its reputation as an engineering company, and they built really solid machines, especially in the 30s and 40s. Oh, oh, definitely. And I've always had this lust, love for late 40s, early 50s Chrysler products. My first car was almost a 1950 Dodge Meadowbrook with the flathead six and three-speed on the column. That was actually used as a movie car, and my mom wouldn't let me buy it, or I just couldn't quite come up with the money. So, um, and still to this day, I want to get a car of that era because there's just right post war cars are so fascinating because you can still see so many elements of the pre war stuff that carried sure. over, but them starting to move into the 50s and a lot more flashy stuff. So, to me, 
I've always been so in love with those. And one of these days, I will find the right car. In uh, basically on my list, it's a Chrysler, Plymouth, Dodge, forty-seven to fifty-one, or a forty-nine to fifty-one Hudson. And I mean, a Hudson Hornet twin H would be my ultimate dream, but those have gotten a little spendy. Yeah, actually, those twin H Hudson Hornets are one of the few cars of that era that have a real strong following. By and large, uh, late '40s American cars are one hell of a value for a person who wants a classic car. They're comfortable. They are by and large reliable, relatively easy to work on. Um, not fast, but you can more than keep up with traffic. And you can get a well, as you say, this this Chrysler Windsor sold for thirty two hundred, and you can get a really nice one, uh, you know, for under twenty thousand. Definitely. And what I'm kind of trying to force myself to realize, I mean, this car would have been perfect because of what it is that um, my ability and my need to get a car, you know, that sat in a field for 40 years and needs everything for, you know, $500 really needs to stop. And I need to get something that's quite a bit more intact and complete, even though if it needs a little bit of work, you know, like my Lincoln, you know, it's the paint's not perfect. You know, the interior's fairly nice. It needs a couple of little things and it was affordable and I could enjoy it. And it, I didn't have to revive a whole bunch of systems because, you know, after a while doing that over and over and again, it just, it kind of does get a little old and it gets a little expensive too. Oh yeah. Well, and especially when you just have to go through the hassle of sourcing things like brake cylinders and you know, making brake lines and all those hydraulics that have to be redone. And, you know, oh, the carburetor. Someone took it off 30 years ago and now parts are missing. I'm going to find a carburetor. Uh, yeah, it, it's like it's a noble task to undertake, but it's also uh, a bit of a labor of Hercules. And there's a lot to be said for finding a car that maybe is not cosmetically perfect, but is mechanically close to drivable. Definitely. And that's one thing I just have to keep telling myself. I need to maintain getting something a bit better off and spend a little bit more money because, you know, I've got a yard full of cars that need a ton of work already. I don't need to keep adding to that. And, you know, when I was 20 years old, it was a little bit of a different story. But now, not so much. And I've got some cool stuff right now. I you know, like like my Rambler, for instance, that car is very, very special to me. It has an incredible history and it's a really cool car. And it runs and drives. I've driven it a bunch of times. It just needs a couple of little things to get it to that next step to where I could really drive it everywhere and really thoroughly enjoy it. So I should really just put on my blinders, buy a big set of blinders, and just focus on my current projects and the Rambler, my Corvair, uh, what the Renault and my international truck are like four big ones that need a bit more work than a few of the other ones, but uh, it won't take too much. And just focus on it and enjoy what I currently have. And all the while, shop for a bargain on a piece of property a little further out of town with a less intrusive municipal government. Yeah, we've uh, we've been talking about that, but we'll see as time goes on. Oh, yeah, and then I also have a motorhome I need to remodel, but anyways. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it, I don't know what you're doing to keep busy. I'm surprised you're not counting flowers on the wall, playing solitaire till dawn, so on and so forth. Um, I'm, I'm not going to sing that song, and I know our listeners will thank me for that. Yeah. But besides that, do you have any entertaining projects uh, upcoming or you're wanting to do to keep you busy and entertained? Well, between a job and travel and uh, 
social engagements, I have not undertaken any major automotive projects. Uh, the next one is probably going to be putting shocks and struts on Chris's Pontiac Sunbird because the ones that are on the car now are we like. What, you can feel how floaty it is. It's a very low mileage car. I think it, it's got less than sixteen thousand miles on it, but. When struts sit for an extended period of time, you know, because you've got a piston and everything going up and down, they it'll just sort of rust and stick and become very unhappy and um, just not work like it should. And believe it or not, uh, struts for J-body, GMJ bodies, which is the Sunbird, Cavalier, um, I'm trying to remember the rest of them, but, uh, you know, we're talking cars that sold in the millions. The struts are actually getting to be rather hard to find. That's really interesting, but also very relatable to the fact of certain vehicles that I have or have owned that you're like, oh, they made a ton of these. Oh, there's a huge production. But then realizing there's not many of them left, so parts are kind of not as prevalent. And you're like, oh, okay, that's no fun. Yeah, I think this, the sweet spot for aftermarket parts is between 10 and 20 years old. And then when you start getting older than that, it can become more difficult. I mean, and I'm speaking in a very general way. I haven't gone and you know, crunched the numbers on which cars have the greatest uh, availability of aftermarket parts because I have neither the time nor the analytical ability to undertake such a project. Yeah. Well, you know, besides like um, uh, older Chevy trucks, Ford trucks, Mustangs, Camaros, you know, the the typical huge stuff still very sought after. There's a, an incredible aftermarket for those. But then you start getting off of the mainstay uh, motorway of those vehicles and start getting into some more obscure stuff or even a Chevy, Pontiac, Buick, Mercury, whatever. And you get into the more weirder or odd stuff that wasn't as loved for a long time or not a huge production. Then you start getting into that issue of going, oh, I hope I find an NOS piece on someone's shelf eventually. You know, uh, when it comes to aftermarket supply of parts, one of my favorite cars is the Evergreen MGB. You can buy everything for an MGB up to and including a new body shell stamped on the original dies. You could build oh, a you can build a new one from parts from a catalog. That's incredible. I didn't know that that particular platform had that much availability. I know there was a lot out there, but I didn't know it was that extent. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The British Motor Heritage still sta- and there's aftermarket too, but you can get the real deal from as almost factory. It's it's really quite amazing. Oh, and Berlin Fuel Systems bought out SU and Amol carburetors. And uh, so, yeah, if you want a new set of SUs, just call Berlin. They'll set you up. Or if you need a rebuild kit, too. No, they are not paying me. Um, I have just done business with them in the past, and I love them dearly because they make these things available. That's also very good to know because there is still quite a lot of vehicles with SUs out there. I mean, I've got – I think I only have one vehicle with SUs on it, but – an odd one, actually, recently in the past couple of years is Bosch of Germany announced that they were no longer going to be producing a lot of the ignition components for older air-cooled Volkswagens, rotors, caps, tune-up kits. They decided they're pulling out and no longer going to be producing those. So there's still, thankfully, a very large um, you know, backlog of inventory all over the world, basically. But they're like, nope, we're done. Well, I mean, the same. it was like the Model T. There was a time when you could buy Model T parts from the Sears catalog. And now, I mean, you can still pretty much get what you might need to keep your Model T running, but it's going to be from, you know, a handful of specialists. Yeah. God knows most of those people that were just specialists have probably all died off now, which actually, interesting kind of a side subject on Model T was the metallurgy they used on a lot of the components back in those days. Some of my uncles, 
He's not big into Model Ts. He likes the A's, but he's more of a flathead guy. But, you know, he told me the Model Ts and Model A's, it's incredible. You can go to someone's house that's, you know, had a, a metal piece to a Model T sitting in the dirt for 80 years. They pull it off, kind of scrub it off, and like, here you go. It looks like almost a brand new part. And I'm trying to remember. Do you remember off the top of your head what the name? Chrome Vanadium Steel. And Chrome Vanadium <clears throat> Steel, yep. And the uh, the... The this is apocryphal. I can't vouch for the truthfulness of this story, but it's a great story. Uh, supposedly, Henry Ford was at a race and a car was wrecked, but he was impressed by uh, the way the car withstood the accident. And he took a piece of the the wreckage and had it analyzed, and it was chrome vanadium steel. And he says, "This is what I shall use in my cars." Um, and again, that's that's based on my memory of reading an apo- a story some years back. So I'm. I'm I'm disclosing that that may or may not be truthful and historically accurate. Makes sense though, but yeah, there's a that's one of those cars that I wouldn't be in a rush to buy, but I wouldn't mind to at some point own as a Model T because they're they're entertaining. And if anyone out there has ever driven a Model T, it is like nothing, nothing you would ever expect how a car should function. It's a it's a bit different. Now, this I know is true. Uh, Back in the Model T's heyday, when there were literally millions of them on the road, some states had two licenses, one for cars with a clutch and a sliding gear transmission, and the other for Fords, because the Fords drove so differently from every other car on the road. Now, in in Henry's defense, he, he was not trying to reinvent the wheel. He had invented it. In 1908, when the Model T came out, there was still no consensus on how a car should be controlled or in what way the controls should be arranged. So so he wasn't doing anything terribly quirky. He he was just doing what worked for him at the time. Exactly. And that's, uh, that's one of those things that I've always found very entertaining is, uh, I would say, like pre-standardization of automotive controls, you know, as we know it, clutch, brake, gas, gear shift, you know, a few things. And all the different, especially the Europeans, they really did some goofy stuff. But up to that point, previous cars that had very different controls, you know, how things worked. Uh, there's a guy on YouTube. Um, I think I think I've met him once many, many years ago. He's got a, a couple of Tatras. But he, he has a car that it has this like, gigantic disc with another disc made of paper that kind of slides back on it. And that's the gear. It's like a friction disc it, thing I, on the back. I, I know the car you're talking about. I'm blanking on the name. And it, and the effect is almost a continuously variable transmission. Yeah, it's like a big external CBT that uses these friction plate materials and a big lever to change it and then go into reverse. And if you see it, it's really kind of amazing how it works. But, you know, they're in that pre-standard idea of how it controls a vehicle should be i think it was you know pre-1910 and i just i love stuff like that you know it's from an engineering mechanical standpoint it's just so much fun and i really would love to have a vehicle that just made no sense how it worked oh yeah there there are some well even even when things started to get standardized there was uh a number of uh european cars like bentley's pre-war bentley's when i say pre-war i don't i mean cricklewood bentley's not darby bentley's the the ones before rolls royce bought them out many of those had a center throttle that's right i don't think i've never driven one that early the earliest one i've ever driven was uh had that really goofy brake booster band on the side of the transmission that if you are moving very fast you basically had no brakes that can get a little sketchy but as long as you know how it works And the mechanical brake servo Rolls-Royce used, they actually built under license from Hispano Suiza, if I am not mistaken. Really? 
Uh-huh, because Rolls-Royce was never really about innovation. They were just about using the best available at the time. There was there was an old uh, there was an old joke about the Silver Ghost that it was a triumph of craftsmanship over engineering, and it's somewhat true. Yeah, I could see that. So, uh, I because I'm one of those people that I have to know when we talk about something or I'll like lose sleep, the vehicle that uses the friction drive transmission with no gear teeth is called a Lambert. Ah, that makes sense. And How they, can I forget Lambert? And they were built up to like, I think, 1911 or maybe a little bit earlier than that. But yeah, it's, you know, oh. 1904 1908 whatnot and uh anyone out there go uh, google lambert friction gear disc drive transmission and it is incredibly fascinating just looking at pictures and like i say there's a guy on youtube that actually has a video he shows how it functions and they drive it and of course also you got to check out his tatras which are one of my absolute love love ideas to own a tatra but unfortunately like a lot of other things that i really like those have gotten so expensive and there's a you know cult following behind those and i don't know if i would ever be able to own one but i can always dream thanks jay leno i mean i know right i i mean and i say that but jay's a good guy he seems to be a good curator of the cars in his collection and his tastes run from you know, Duesenbergs to, to Renault Dauphines, and I can't be too angry at a person who has such a diverse collection. Oh, no. it's I've always really admired him, and one of my dreams in life is to eventually meet Jay Leno and you know just take a peek at his collection in person. But I really admire him for the fact that you know he has all these vehicles spanning from you know turn of the century up to fairly modern stuff, and he can drive everything he keeps them all going and you know he'll take a car that spent a very large amount of money on restoring and he'll drive the wheels off of it to going i guess i should probably restore it again but he enjoys it and he loves it and he curates the history of it which i really admire him for yeah no and i one thing i would i would like to ask but i would also not like to ask mr leno is what will become of his collection when the inevitable time comes that he's no longer with us because it's too important to just disperse to the winds Oh, it's a historical significance of his collection. I mean, some of the stuff he has is just absolutely mind-blowing. But yeah, I've I thought of that too because he has no kids. I mean, I'm sure it'll probably end up being in a foundation or, you know, it'll he may end up being a, a museum. Yeah, he may already have a trust set up for it. I'm he's he's a smart guy. I'm sure he's thought of something. But um, whatever. I, I just hope that it's able to live on, and it'd be great if it lived on in such a way. Uh, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because Jay's still very much here. But uh, let you're speaking for many future generations. Let's hope it's able to uh, stay together and be enjoyed. Yeah. And all I can say is, if this ever gets out there and Jay Leno hears it, all I want in my life, which will be a perfect completion for my happiness, is to go for a ride in a Doble steam car and the turbine Chrysler because those are just. Two incredible cars, engineering, fascination, since I was young and I first found out about them. And there's really not too many places you could even like touch one besides his place. And oh, that would just that would make me beyond happy. I would be happy just to even just to get to walk around. I wouldn't even need to go for a ride, but I still want to go for a ride. I know, right. Oh, yeah. But anyways, well, I think we're coming up pretty close on our time. So we'll uh, get this episode out and then we're going to do, do the DC Auto Show one, which I think we're going to kind of uh, add it as an extra uh, episode. So they're only going to be one week apart and then we'll do some more audio recording for our usual uh, episodes. And uh, yeah, we'll start really getting some uh, some good stuff out there for our future episodes. And um, you and I had talked uh, 
we're going to get your husband on and talk about something on a mechanical level that isn't cars, but we're going to actually talk about trains and have our first guest speaker on with him. Oh, I'm excited. And, you know, he's a qualified steam engineer and diesel engineer, so he's knowledgeable in the operation of both infernal and external combustors. Well... I can say I really look forward to listening to him talk about it because I've loved trains since I was a little kid. And uh, it'd be kind of cool to divert off to a slightly different mechanical aspect of things that move under some sort of power. So it's going to be a fun one. I agree, and I'm looking forward to it. Well, as usual, Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting and catching up and getting this episode recorded. And everyone out there, thank you so much for your support as usual. And please don't be shy. Email us, contact us, let us know, ask to be on the show. We're open to all kinds of stuff. And uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Catch everyone on the next episode. And thanks again.